Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Look at this big, sprawling, bloody mess of a story called America. Like Thomas Wolfe's novel, Look Homeward Angel, it's full of flashes of brilliance, but constantly leaves you scratching your head, wondering who, if anyone's, in charge. At a safe remove, America is a hyper-reality show, a viral, dark carnival. Grab your popcorn, folks. Here we go again. Close up, though, it can get really heartbreaking. Lots of real lives get ground up in those gears. As Alexander Hamilton put it, the American experiment puts to the test the question, quote, of whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. This quotation and this question surfaces throughout Jill Lepore's brilliant new history of the United States, these truths. The answer, it's complicated. Lepore sums it up like this. A nation born in revolution will forever struggle against chaos. A nation founded on universal rights will wrestle against the forces of particularism. A nation that toppled a hierarchy of birth only to erect a hierarchy of wealth will never know tranquility. A nation of immigrants cannot close its borders. And a nation born in contradiction, liberty in a land of slavery, sovereignty in a land of conquest will fight forever over the meaning of its history. Welcome to Think Again, Jill. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is a hell of a book. I wish it had existed when I was in college and been required for like all college <laughs> freshmen because I feel like it just reveals all of these things that if you don't know the history, which many of us do not know, especially in the kind of detail that you go into it in the book, things look indelible and unchangeable. You know, the the positions that the different parties are taking look like they've monolithically been that way forever. And the world simply isn't like that. You trace these things back often to very surprising origins. Yeah, I often think one of the reasons I like writing about history is when the present is really troubling me, it's good to know that things had a beginning because then we know they also will have an end. Right. So I, I find a certain kind of solace in that, even when the past is quite ugly and murderous and full of atrocity, there's something about knowing that some problems have been around for a long time and they're really hard to crack. Yeah. That just, I don't know, I, it's humbling, but it's it's also a small, weirdly, a kind of comfort. Yeah, well, and that things that are so big and shaping our lives to such an enormous degree have their origins often in just some strange choice that somebody made. I mean, like, for example, the, you know, interpretation of the 14th Amendment to give individual human rights to corporations begins with... Yeah, I think it's 1884. Right. So, right, there really aren't corporations as we would know them until the late 19th century. There are joint stock companies, obviously, could go centuries back, but... It's, this is just a kooky story. I right. mean, it reveals the complete contingency of history. History is a series of accidents and chaos. You can look for patterns, but it's really, if you're, what you're trying to do, which is how politics works, if you're trying to kind of fish through the past for some political justification for your own position, this one's a hard one. Because, <laughs> right, right. So what happens in 1884, this great guy with a great name, Roscoe Conkling, right. who's basically a corporate attorney. He's making piles of money representing the railroads at the great age of railroad expansion. When the populist movement starts in the 19th century, where poor farmers are like, wait a minute, how come the federal government is giving all the best land 
to railroad companies, and they don't tax them. And we have to pay these taxes, and we have this land that's unirrigated. And so there's big political debate uh, right. in the 1870s and 1880s about the disproportionate political power that railroads have. And so California passes a law saying railroads have to be taxed. Right. Their, their land ownership has to be taxed. And so <laughs> railroad, I think it's the Santa Fe Railroad, hires Conkling to argue the case, which goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And Conkling is pretty intimidating because he's argued a lot of cases before the court. He's just flashy, really effective guy. And also, he's been named to the court twice, but twice he's turned it down because he doesn't want to take the salary cut. Right, right, right. Like, just, <laughs> like you, could, you have a picture, like you picture the like the velvet waistcoat. You know, I mean, like I have a picture of this guy. I have no idea what he looks like. So he goes, <laughs> he goes in and he says, you know, you can't tax the Santa Fe Railroad Company because it's protected under the 14th Amendment from this particular form of, of taxation under the Equal Protection Clause of the, of the 14th Amendment, which protects all persons. And the Supreme Court justices are like scratching their heads like, what? Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> and he says, well, railroad corporations are, are persons. You know, we understand the legal fiction in some way. We, right. uh, there are a lot of legal fictions in our life, right? Right. Um, even that people can own real estate is a legal fiction. Like, how do you own dirt? Like, or how far down? Sure. We have, there's just a lot of legal fictions that we take for granted. But this was kind of a new one. So the justice is like, what are you, like, Roscoe, what gives? And right. he says, oh, well, you'll recall, I was on the committee, the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, that drafted the 14th Amendment way back in, you know, 1860. Seven or sixty-eight or whatever it was. So this is after, right after the Civil, after the Civil War, War, to ensure right. the rights right. of because newly the, enfranchised. The citizens. former Confederate states are passing all these laws, the, these black codes, where they're just basically almost effectively reinstituting slavery. So the Fourteenth Amendment passes, and the Reconstruction Congress says, uh, you, "You, all people, are guaranteed the equal protection of the law." Right. And all persons. And it's the word race isn't in it, but the amendment is designed to protect people no matter their race. Right. And Conkling says, oh, but um, we chose the word persons there because we meant to extend equal protection to corporations. They're like, what? He says, well, I have it in this journal here, like these <laughs> notes he took during the, during the committee. So conveniently, every other member of that committee is dead by 1884. Right. And apparently, according to Adam Winkler, who wrote this book, We the Corporations, like maybe last year, where he tells a story, he's resurrected the story. Conklin was just lying about what was even in his notebook. Like this, there's, there's just no persuasive evidence in oh the historical God. record whatsoever. It, it doesn't. It doesn't even. I mean, he wins the case, but it doesn't establish this as a real precedent. It's only later, uh, in the just real extravagance of the Gilded Age, that this corporations begin to use it this way. And so now, in addition, but I to, mean, it, it gives a le it gives it leverage. Gives, right. It's, for a, sure. it's not it's like, quite a precedent, right, but right, it is, right, gets right. enters the Supreme Court <laughs> records. So now there's equal protection, 14th Amendment rights, but in our day, right, we corporations assume First Amendment rights, that they have the freedom of speech, and therefore that's Citizens United, right? Free, right. free speech right, First Amendment right. And now they have freedom of religion rights, right? That's the other, that's currently being adjudicated. Right, allowing private companies to refuse services. Right, no to contraceptive coverage for their employees, for instance, because right. it violates their, their freedom of religion. Right. So, yeah, history is full of these weird, kooky, I don't know, quite really extravagant Dickensian moments, yeah. uh, but that you know clearly could have gone another way. You know, I was also very surprised to learn that the sort of the argument from the Second Amendment that every individual has the right to bear arms was initially introduced 
in the context of black empowerment movements that was basically about the right to arm yourself against a hostile yeah, nation. that that in the the so-called individual rights interpretation of the Second Amendment yeah. really is a kind of Black Panther sort of Huey Newton thing. Before then, legal scholars called the Second Amendment the Lost Amendment because no one ever cited it for anything. Like it was just like right, we don't yes, need a militia. You know, right? yes, people can go own <laughs> guns, but also yes, like in a city, you could say you can't bring your gun. Like that's just how it's always been, and we're not really actively having militias anymore. But Black Panthers in this sort of age of of black nationalism offer this individual rights interpretation. And weirdly, in one of the sort of freakier moves, uh, the coalition that takes over the NRA and essentially ousts the longtime leadership of the NRA in the middle of the 1970s just borrows that individual rights interpretation. And then it actually weirdly gets codified. Like, I think it's 1982, Warren Hatch chairs a subcommittee of, I guess must be the Judiciary Committee that studies the Second Amendment. They write this report called the Lost Amendment. And what they right. say is, lost to history is, you know, the fact we've, everybody has forgotten. But in fact, like the, the real meaning of this amendment is that the government cannot impede at any level, local, state, federal, anyone's ability to carry a gun for and, any purpose. And, and, and prior to this like insurrection within the NRA, the NRA and the GOP at the time are advocating gun yeah. control Yeah, I mean, laws. the NRA is formed in 1871 right. as a kind of hunting and marksman's organization, kind of like sort of YMCA-ish, like a sporting organization. Right. Boys club. And it's very, you know, <laughs> teaches boys exactly how to use guns and knives and sh sharpshooting. And they spark, you know, they host marksmanship contests and they have centers and training. Uh, but in the 1930s, they support the two big federal firearms acts, the National and Federal Firearms Acts. And in the 1960s, they support the 1968 Gun Control Act, uh, which is passed after the assassination of JFK. Is that uh, under Nixon or who's? No, the... it's still under LBJ. LBJ. So 68. Okay, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, and they, you know, it's really not until the 1970s that the organization changes its whole emphasis, and then. In 1980, for the very first time, endorses a presidential candidate with Ronald Reagan. I mean, what's interesting also is sort of the way that these themes kind of get passed back and forth to the right and the le like from the right to the left and back again. I mean, that I think of or have thought of this interpretation of the Second Amendment as a an originalist position that is a sort of like orthodox constitutional reading position mm -hmm. saying that like, this is what it says, look at the document, whatever. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's quite a figurative interpretation. Yeah, originally, yeah. You know? it cloaks itself in originalism. And that's where the argument gets so brittle, right? And it's a response to a lot of liberal interpretation of the Constitution, and particularly of the Bill of Rights. Right. So in some ways, it's a response to the assertion of the liberal court, the Warren court, and its expansion of rights and its expansive interpretation of rights, and particularly right. like the right to privacy, which you know in 1965 with Griswold v. Connecticut, this birth, this contraception ruling identifies the right to privacy as somehow what is it in the penumbra, the shadow of the penumbra, whatever. Like William O. Douglas writes this opinion, which <laughs> like the right to privacy. Okay, it's not in the Constitution, but it's like hiding in the shadows between, like in the kerning between the letters or something, and. Um, it that the right to privacy is is first is part of the First Amendment okay. somehow. So the assertion of that, I mean, how how that kind of manifests is then critics of that liberal jurisprudence say, you guys are just imagining new rights. 
Mm. But we are actually going back to the original document and finding the rights that actually did it. Like the First Amendment, Second Amendment battle is a very left-right thing, but it drives American political polarization for decades. And the way I think this is actually really interesting, and I thought of most of the stuff in this book, I hadn't really thought about it in any systematic way. It was really like, I wanted that book in college too. So it was fun to right. try to, well, what do I need to know? But like what I think what kind of happens where the polarization and also the party realignment where like the sides sort of swap on a number of right. things in the 1970s, 80s really is about the second and the first amendment, sort of the, the right to privacy and abortion and reproductive rights versus gun rights, which are often asserted as like a, like a white male right, like Got a white it. male civil rights movement. And the reason that this sort of guns and abortion thing works so well for polarization is like they're marketed by political consultants as constitutional rights that are being violated by the other party, that are being taken from you. Right. And that's not crazy in the sense that they're both fragile constitutional rights. That the right to privacy they're based really on almost nothing. And, yeah. the, <laughs> right, right. and the Second Amendment individual rights interpretation really is kind of a new idea. So they are, like, structurally, they both are fragile. And if you convince people that, like, like on the one side, it works in this court, like, picture a little box. Mm. Like, on, like, the x-axis is guns and abortion, and on the y-axis is murder and freedom. <laughs> it's like right. either guns are freedom and abortion is murder, or abortion is freedom and guns are murder. Right. And so everything then is lines up like it's either life or death. It's either freedom or murder. And so you can get people to the to vote because they're like, this is this life or death issue that's violating your constitutional rights. And people go vote and they vote in an ideological consistent way with these new highly ideological parties. Right. And that's I mean in many ways kind of the origins of our present dilemma. And a lot of this which is not to say that abortion rights isn't an important and essential fight, but a lot of this was manipulated and was sort of like inflated and used by, you, you trace it back to, I mean, even early forms of propaganda during World War II, but then ultimately these kind of PR rise of political PR firms that start using very inflated tactics to divide the electorate. Yeah. I mean, in terms of my own views about the importance of reproductive rights, like that's the thing is they stand on a wobbly constitutional foundation, which gives political consultants a lot of room to really just hit people up. It's always going to be a finger pointing in both directions about who started the problem, but ultimately, you know, arguably opens up this chasm and this problem that if if those rights had been argued for on a different constitutional basis, basis or... Right. Or, or if we'd I, achieved a real political settlement. Right. right. Where arguably we have achieved a political settlement on abortion and that the vast majority of Americans support it as a right for women to choose. Right. May have their own moral reservations about it. Many people who would not have an abortion nevertheless still think it's important that it be... A, but the basis on which that, that political settlement was never really made. I mean, one of the things that historians of the women's rights movement will point to is that women were well on their way to achieving the Equal Rights Amendment. Right. Passed Congress in 1972, and then Roe, which is decided not the way feminist legal scholars wanted it to be. They wanted it to be cited on the 14th Amendment equal protection, like as a, as a matter of equality. Right. It gets decided on this right to privacy, to be honest, because the judges would rather not think about women's bodies They're like privacy. That's private. Like that's more comfortable, <laughs> I think, at some gotcha, level. Gotcha. Do you know what I mean? And What's so interesting about the gay rights of the same-sex marriage movement is like 
the LGBT movement's like, we don't want to be private. Like, pri- like, yeah, we could get our right to strike down sodomy laws based on a right to privacy. But actually, like, we want to come out of the closet. Like, privacy is not our thing. Right. And so the as LGBTQ movement kind of rejects the constitutional argument of right to privacy and really does pursue it as an equal protection. That's like the move from you know, to same-sex marriage is a way to insist on equal, like, right. that has, that's a 14th Amendment issue. That's equal protection of the laws. And it's we happening at a different historical moment. It happens later on. In where it, yeah. the culture is somehow yeah. ready, I guess. But for- that political settlement <laughs> just feels more settled. I mean, I don't know if you would feel differently, but I think that just feels more settled. I don't think we see a lot of states really, you know, trying to creepingly restrict the ability of men to marry other men. So no. It doesn't, it, it's like a settled affair. That could have happened with equal rights, and therefore reproductive rights could have just been a subcategory of equal rights. Like if women and men have equal rights, and you can't tell men, a man that he, you know, has to have this child, and you can't tell women, like it, that's why equal rights doesn't pass too. But it's a, just the contingency of all that. But what's really freaked me out in looking at this was (laughs) how, you know, how hard these political consultants work for the short-term political gain to just make these things. They need these things to not be settled, right? If you think about it, you're trying to get people out to the polls. You don't want there to be a political settlement about this stuff. You need to stir it up every election. And they keep stirring it up and stirring it up and stirring it up. And then along comes the internet and social media. And now it's all automated and nobody can stop nobody can pull the brakes like it's a it's a machine driven polarization that's what i i think that's our sense that we're like careening off a cliff and you can't no matter how much goodwill you have about trying to build a better community right. of citizens around and across difference it's like how do you like we're how the trains go on this that track genie back in yeah. the bottle yeah i mean going back to because you bring up that question of Hamilton's like three times in the book. It comes up in the beginning. It comes up right in the middle around like page 400. And then it comes up again in the epilogue, maybe more. But I noticed it three times. And so do you think that that is still a valid question when looking at America? Do you think that it's the right question? If so, where are we at in terms of the answer? I do still think it's the right question. I don't have I don't have an answer for it. I mean, the purpose of using that as the framework for the book is to say it's everybody's obligation to try to answer this question. Right. Because if we think we have not erected a system of government that allows for us to live and be ruled not by accident and force, but by reason and choice, then we have to fix it. Like then we need either to like start again or we need to make some significant adjustments. But in that sort of pausing and taking stock is the thing that doesn't happen, right? Because we live right. in this sort of passless society where it's the latest push notification is sort of all you can keep in your head. And how do you, if you're chasing the news every day, like so many of us do, and just sort of like in a, we're stuck in this Pavlovian news world, <laughs> right. how do you pull back and say, hmm, I wonder when it was that the Supreme Court took on this much of a role in popular culture <laughs> or, right. you know, whatever right, it is right, that right. we might think like, that seems to be different than how it was designed to be. Did we do that on purpose? Like, did I sign on for... And everything have... everything sort of has the force of fact on the inner everything. I mean, like equal weight. And as you say, they just keep coming in quick succession. So opinion, fact, assertion. We don't have a sense of the past. So we don't have 
a sense of time. Right. We don't have a sense of proportion because everything on the internet is sort of the equal size. It can be really is the equal size. And then we also don't have the capacity to deliberate in a sense. I mean, I don't know. You think about people often say like so many things are effectively done by Twitter now. Right. And yet as if we live in, in, a, in a plebiscite, right? <laughs> but can you, um, for audience members who might not know, just like a direct democracy, right, like, right, right, where right, everybody, right, like right, there right. is no deliberative body or representative right, body no or no yeah. governors. We just collectively, you know, is is instantly as possible make decisions based on. But like, I'm not on Twitter. I will never be on Twitter. <laughs> like, so I think about like all the people who are not on Twitter are completely disenfranchised. If that's the world we live in now, right? So we didn't actually agree. I never agreed that weighty political decisions should be made by elected officials based on how much screaming is going on about Twitter, mm-hmm. on Twitter <laughs> about something. But elected officials seem to be acting as if that's the case. I think it's the test market for new products. It's right. how newspapers decide what stories are going to be on the front page or, you know, that we're tra- constantly tracking these numbers that are as if they are a measure a democratic measure, as if we're like, this is making the world a more democratic place. But in fact, honestly, the most sober-minded, fair-minded, quiet-spoken people have no voice in that world, right? Like none, like none. Not to mention, like, (laughs) people who are just abjectly poor or who not, like, just working so hard that they're not going to be tweeting all day. The people who are on Twitter all day, every day, is a really, really... Odd. It's not a representative sampling of the population. I imagine that Hamilton might have been active on there, but, <laughs> but Madison maybe not so much. But you've crammed a lot of history into 800 pages, and I can't imagine anyone doing it more effectively. But like the nodes of American history, as as I I see them over the course of of the story that you tell, it seems like at different times there there have been these moments where we've sort of come together in one way or another, either by by force or historical forces have brought us together to ask this question, what is it that we want out of our government? What is it supposed to do? How do we make sure it does that? Sometimes that's been you know, managed from the top down, like Lincoln after the Civil War, FDR. I mean, where I live now, in the America I live in now, I don't feel that there is any consensus or even the idea of what it would mean to come to some consensus over what we want out of our government, how the government should be structured to do that. There are lots of ideas, lots of communities. I guess I would say there are political and social movements that have a revolutionary quality to them. Right. You mean um, right now, right at now. this moment? You yeah. know, in, in the last decade, there have been sure. a number, right? So sort of Occupy or Black, Black Lives, Lives Matter, Matter or the Tea Party movement, Me Too. They're not reform movements. They're really, they have a kind of more revolutionary character right. than throw that. It, throw it all like, out, blow start it up. over. It yeah, has yeah. been so unfair for so long. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's very powerful. I don't, I mean, and I, for each of those movements, I understand where that comes from. Right. Um, and for the, the audience, I want to say, I want to point out that you you make a distinction. You you explain populism and progressivism, and you know that progressivism is has historically been about working within the system to reform it, to open it up, make it more liberal. Populism has often advocated more of a revolutionary stance. And yeah. That's kind of yeah. where we're at now. So. 
it's hard to imagine. I guess, with exception maybe of the Tea Party, most of those movements have specifically abdicated electoral politics. Right. Right. Most of them are doing their work at the level of cultural politics, and I mean, they're, there's not that they're not calling for legislative change, like Occupy in particular. Like, although the whole demand nothing is a little baffling to those of us who believe in elections <laughs> and laws. Um, but, you know, they they are demanding change. There was some idea that, like, I think there was some idea from the folks I talked, because I t- interrogated friends yeah. around this. I yeah. had one friend who was pretty active in that. And and I didn't understand it either, and I'm not sure the movement understood it, but mm-hmm. the idea was somehow that they were all establishing subcommittees and then some kind of structure was, l- like, yeah. meant to ex- emerge somehow. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But okay. it's yeah, sort like of... Yeah, the tens and the hundreds or something. Right. But the Tea Party movement, I mean, obviously, those people wanted to repeal Obamacare, and they wanted to win elections, and they wanted to transform the Republican Party. were right. extremely successful. Of those movements, the one that has actually achieved the most power is the Tea Party movement. Mm. Even though we don't think of it in, as like a daily going concern because they're not like Tea Party rallies going on, they actually succeeded in a lot of what they attempted to do. I mean, they, the, the Affordable Care Act has not been repealed, but they really did transform the Republican Party in some meaningful ways. Yeah, Trump is to a Trump certain comes extent out of it their in many guy. Ways, yeah, a lot, yeah, of, that, yeah, like, yeah, a lot yeah. of that stuff was anti-immigrant. A yeah, lot of the yeah. Tea Party stuff was anti-immigrant. So in terms of how change happens that makes the government work better for more people, that in American history has been political reform, not political revolution. And, and in world history, and it's hard to think so, of. Well, you know, although it, although American history begins with revolution, yeah. of course. Yeah, so. and it, that's that's why also like well, every <laughs> political movement that is revolutionary in its character. But I mean, but think about civil rights. It's essentially a religious movement. I mean, it's a it's a, mm. it's, a it's an evangelical Christian crusade, and it's it is reform minded. I mean, it's it's it achieves right. so much. But how it achieves it is actually by insisting on legislative change. It just will not be made invisible. It will just not go away. It will not go away. Right. Um, so I don't. I guess all of which is to say I don't know exactly where that comes from here. Mm-hmm. The like call out culture of like we're just going to say this person is a bad person and this person is a bad person and this person is a bad person. I, I just doesn't seem to me to be a great way to achieve significant governmental change. It's a, maybe a necessary stage in a process toward that. I find it I find it a little a little baffling because I think you lose so many political allies when that's your yeah um, no mode it's of operation. I yeah I find it difficult and frustrating as well. Even when I agree with. You know, right, this, exactly. So, I, there's, there's a lot that I agree with about people who, you know, people are like, hey, you know what? Actually, that person is a pretty bad person. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know, at the moment when we're sitting here right now uh, in Congress, this they're talking about 
Kavanaugh sexually assaulting Ford. And I don't even know where to begin, but I am curious sort of like what you're having just written this book and now sort of seeing this all play out. I mean, including the sort of outrage culture aspects of it. I'm curious where you're you're sitting as you're looking at all this. I have two different lenses that I look at it with. These are aside from the main one, which is just a sense of personal anguish at how what a hard thing this woman has taken on and how painful it is to know what it is costing her and how sad that makes me. That's a pretty, maybe 90% of how I've responded to the thing at the moment that we're sitting here today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the moment when she appears before the Senate Judiciary Committee. But the two lenses would be one, the long history of women's struggle for equality before the law, and the other, the long history of the relationship between the Supreme Court and public opinion. Okay. And so to take the second one first, that to me is the screwier one, honestly, because the Supreme Court, at the Constitutional Convention, it really was going to be, I think, I think it was just going to be the president was going to just name the justices. Okay. Appointments for life because they should be insulated, not elected, Public, they shouldn't be answerable to public opinion because then they'd just be like another branch of the legislature, right? Right. And um, at the very last, and nobody objected. At the very last minute, they said, "Oh well, well the Senate should have approval." Right. The so, so they added that. Executive doesn't and have then too much power. That really was kind of not a big thing. Like hardly ever. I don't think until like 1853 did the Senate even form a committee to entertain and nominee. They just went to the Senate and they just all voted for them. I mean, there are a couple of people who were voted down, um, but nobody went. None of the nominees went to appear before the Judiciary Committee. I mean, usually the committee didn't even meet. But then in 1925, I think it's Harlan Stone, who had been implicated in the Teapot Dome scandal during Warren Harding's very corrupt administration. Right. He was nominated, and so he agreed to go to the Senate Judiciary Committee because they basically want to ask him, like, did you commit any crime during the Teapot Dome Hmm. thing? Because he'd been in Harding's administration. So he goes, and it's the first time anybody even appears. But it's not, obviously, it's not televised, it's not even on the radio. And then in 1937... Hugo Black is nominated by FDR, and he doesn't go before the Judiciary Committee. He's confirmed. But during the confirmation vote in the Senate, people are like, wait a minute, isn't he in the KKK? (laughs) So, (laughs) and in fact, he had been in the KKK. So they have this discussion about it, and they they vote him in anyway. And turns out Hugo Black, so embarrassed of his KKK past, becomes an important desegregationist. Like, he, you know, votes for Brown v. Board. He becomes a really important civil rights. Interesting, yeah. but then two years later, when Felix Frankfurter is nominated, people are like, all right, this guy, we hear he's a communist. So they tell him he has to come and answer questions because they kind of the Senate kind of regrets not having asked Hugo Black any questions. Right. So Frankfurter is really the first time that a candidate actually appears before the Senate Judiciary Committee for anything other than like just one question. And he says like, I will not answer any questions <laughs> except for one. And they say, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And he says, no. And that's pretty much it. I mean, they keep them there for okay. like an hour and he answers other things. Um, but it's not till 1955 that it becomes a routine that it would just be like a thing that they would bring candidates in. So if you think about the Kavanaugh thing, like the stain of having been a member of the KKK, the suspicion of having been a communist. Right. And now, like, that's, this is where we are. Like, the allegation of sex, of having committed a sexual assault. Right. Is the equivalent of those things in terms of, like, like just kind of where we are. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, and, uh, I mean, and it seems to me equally relevant in terms of the question of, you know, 
judicial can impartiality. You, right, are you and, a person yeah. who can rule yeah. for all the people? Yeah. Yeah. So it is, I think in a way, it's to think about that, lineage situates it in a, in a, it's just, so it's the immediate televised, like the let's crowdsource his calendar from 1982. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there's a weird, freaky, dystopian, panopticon-y thing going on. So, but in which like somehow this isn't the Senate Judiciary Committee that's making this decision. This is all of us. Like we're supposed to be tweeting about it and telling them how to vote. And that's the like sort of government by Twitter that I find very, very freaky. So that's the one lens. The other lens is just we're here because women do not have like equal rights before the law. Right. That is why we're here. Right. We're not here because someone is waging a very nefarious campaign to take down poor Brett Kavanaugh. He may or may not have, I don't, you know, I, but this is because women don't have equal rights before the law. And this right. has, it. this stuff is gonna keep. The way that Kavanaugh's defenders are responding to the allegations is just further evidence of sort of how far there is left to go. I mean, that the sort of boys will be boys points, the, oh, if we held everyone to account for everything that they did when they were, I mean, we're talking about if this happened, you know, we're talking about a situation of sexual assault in someone who's got a track record that doesn't seem particularly positive towards women. So that's the, you know. that's the error of the defenders, the error of the accusers or the right. defenders of of the accusers is a complete inability to distinguish, uh, to understand the relationship between ends and means. The problem with a lack of reporting of sexual assault is a culture of public shaming. Right. What is the chief weapon of the Me Too movement? Public shaming. I think that is a, mm. that is a disaster. Mm. That is a disaster. I mean, this is the whole sort of Martin Luther King, like destructive means will never produce constructive ends. Like you can't, you can't be violent because you will just, in the end, you will achieve something violent. The so, thing I always think, I always think back in the context of this stuff to like the Chinese cultural revolution and them putting dunce caps on people and parading them through the streets, you know, with signs, you know, or people having to go through these lengthy public apologies. And now we have, we do have these rituals of the public apology. And then we have the rituals of the articles about how the public apology doesn't mean anything. And, you know, it is. It's just a whole mess of symbolic politics. And it's not, it's not repairing civil society. It's not making laws more enforceable. Mm. It's not I would be shocked to learn that it is is encouraging a culture of reporting. I you can hear intellectually people say it'd be better if people would report, but you watch what happens. I, I, it's just you know that if you come out now in this culture, like on the one hand, it is a brave political move, and you're going to have a lot of supporters, but there's going to be a massive, instantaneous circus and just lightning striking from every direction. So for, for victims of assault, for example, I mean, on the one hand, I guess this situ the current climate may encourage some of them, some more of them to come out and speak out, and others will be 10 times more terrified because of the intensity yeah, of Yeah, and the, the, the other just general <laughs> cost of this toxic, the kind of public shaming call out stuff of the left is... It really discourages people who have rich lives from playing any p public role. Mm. Um, people who care about their loved ones, mm. uh, p 
people who are caring for elderly parents and can't afford to be distracted from their obligations to others right. by being the subject of an online media, you know, mob. It like it it just it really diminishes the quality of people who participate in public culture. Mm. Um, you know, I hear all the time from people who say, "Yeah, I could." You know, I'm never going to write an op-ed. I mean, it mean the end of my like that. That just it's such a punitive thing, and it's that is that is the left imitating the tactics of the right. The shutting down of discourse, you know, and you talk about this a little bit also in the book. I've been hearing lately on campuses about platformization. Don't give this person a platform. And we just had this situation with Steve Bannon at the New Yorker Festival, and I'm actually of two minds about this. I mean, I, you know, on the one hand, was it Franklin? Yeah, Franklin was talking about how journalism and the public press was a place for contrasting opinions to fight it out and basically for reason to emerge out of that, right? But I mean, you know, when it comes to people like, say, Ann Coulter, right, or someone like Milo Yiannopoulos, who are essentially performance artists, not really intellectually honest, not representing a position with intellectual honesty, but more sort of, I don't know, inhabiting a persona in order to create trouble. The question is, like, on what stages should those people be having conversations? Yeah, I mean, this, too, is the left imitating the tactics of the right. I mean, the, okay. that movement, the no-platform movement, it, it comes from the right. I mean, it is not, it is it, it moves to the left, but the idea that those who should be allowed to participate in the public forum are limited to people whose views we find conducive to our own, that is the ideology of the defenders of the institution of slavery. That is why abolitionists, when they form their first political party, are the free labor, free speech party. Mm -hmm. Because it is illegal in the slave South to publish abolitionist literature. It is illegal in the slave South to teach an enslaved child or man or woman to read. Right. There is no free speech in the South, is what abolitionists say. That's why that's where kind of calling it free speech instead of talking about the freedom of speech. There is no free speech in the slave. There can be no free speech in a slave state, is basically right. a slogan of abolitionists. So the great fighters for free speech in the 19th century are abolitionists. Frederick Douglass gives this incredibly moving speech about free speech. Um, there's a great story about this Massachusetts congressman who goes to Congress uh, and he's about to get on the train in Western Massachusetts to go back to Washington and a bunch of his constituents meet him at the train station and they give him a gun that is engraved free speech because all the Southerners go to Congress armed. Right. That's why they're called the slave power. They actually, like, they literally get into fistfights on the floor of Congress and the Northerners have refused to be armed because they just, they just, they want to use speech. And, and his constituents like, you're going to get yourself killed. <laughs> right, like, right, 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 right. You got to, here's a gun. It's free. You can call your gun free speech. <laughs> Um, that that is the big battle between freedom and slavery. And it moves into the women's rights campaign. You know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton gives speeches about the importance of free speech because it is unspeakable to say that women should be equal to men. Right. It is something that will be censored and is unsayable. When Ida B. Wells forms her first newspaper uh, in Memphis to campaign against lynching, the name for newspaper is free speech. And the anti-lynching is like, it, it is necessary to say that lynching is a crime and has to end. And right. I'm going to use my capacity to speak freely to that point. So 
but this is the concern among the founding fathers and and or and found you know going back to the founding of the republic about democracy i guess is that if you you know if you have real democracy then you can have a situation where the majority rules so, and what the majority, you know, freedom of speech can allow ideas to spread that, you know, of like religious fundamentalism or whatever it might be, um, you know, in a public forum that ultimately takes over right, the but government. Religious you know? fundamentalism should spread in a public forum. I mean, why why shouldn't it? Like you I can't guess, I guess choose what I, you know, which ideas you think should be freely expressed. The I, thing that it's con- that is contingent on is a fair field. I mean, and Franklin would say this, and this, you know, uh, would this what you referred to from 1731, which is just basically a recasting of John Milton, you know, that right, in, right, in a, right. on a fair field, truth and error will have a fair fight and truth will always win. If the field's not fair, they can't even have that fight. And right. that's what, that's why abolitionists are like, you have to be able to have free speech. It has to be sayable that all people are created equal, including black people. Like this has to be something we are allowed to say. Right. Like Douglas in his narrative of his coming up from slave, escaping slavery, talks about the first time he word the, heard the word abolitionist. It's an illegal word. He didn't even, the word's not sayable. Right. So they're, they're trying to create a fair field and that's what the freedom, that to execute the freedom of the press to that end. We, you, it is a but question, wait, it is a question now whether this is a fair field, right? In our media environment, is there any fair field left. That's the, I think that's the structural question. Well, and if there are ideologies that are based in shutting down freedom of speech, and if they have equal opportunity to take over, then you are, you know, you're, again, I'm not advocating that we should have liberal fascism. I, 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 I maybe I'm playing devil's advocate on that or something, but I mean... Yeah, well, the more I, strenuously you in, argue that position, the more I'm going to argue back. So, I mean, I, I think... I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, just, it's remember that college piece of it, that starts in California with Ronald Reagan when right. he says, Stokely Carmichael can't speak at Berkeley. He's like, this, I defy him to come here and try to speak here. Like, he should not be allowed. This is right. a public university. Right. He shouldn't be allowed. And this, this is the campus of free speech. Same like, exact, that is what that yeah. free speech movement is about. It has got men and women from Berkeley who went and signed up registered voters in the South during the Freedom Summer. They come back to Berkeley. They're all about now free speech because in order to advance their argument about civil rights and increasingly their opposition to the war in Vietnam, they want to be able to speak freely on campus and to disagree with the government on campus. And Ronald Reagan's like, you can't do that. And he says, the public university should provide no platform to people who come here Hmm. to disagree, uh, to to call for the burning of draft cards, which is one of the things that Stokely Carmichael does. That's, if if you want to say Steve Bannon can't talk at your university, that is your intellectual forebear. And I think it's important to admit that. And if you still want to say, you know what, Ronald Reagan was right. Stokely Carmichael should not have been allowed to speak at the University of Berkeley in the 1960s. Well, then defend that position. But don't tell me that you're doing something different than that. I, 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 I have no answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> I have gone almost right up to the end of our time. And there is a element to the format of this show that has to do with surprise video clips. But honestly, I, on very rare occasions in the history of this, the three year illustrious history of this show, I have suspended that completely. And that's what's happened today. I've just allowed it because I think it's important, this, what we're talking about. Okay. I'm sorry I got feisty there. No, no, I'm glad you got, well, you definitely shouldn't be apologizing for that. Um, no, I mean, 
I guess I've also seen situations, you know, we see this play out in other countries as well. You know, like my, my wife is from Turkey and I've seen over the last 10 years how gradually the sort of, there's been a kind of like crypto Islamism that has has now become less and less crypto. And, you know, we're seeing neighborhoods uh, boycotting alcohol. You know, we're seeing kind of dry neighborhoods appearing and we're, we're just seeing gradually a lot of those liberal European-leaning freedoms that they were used to being eroded. But there's a long history there too. I mean, it's, Yeah, and you know, I, it's not that yeah. I'm not concerned. Yeah, I am yeah. so gravely concerned. I'm just barely <laughs> a shade away from a state of panic. It's that I kind of, it comes back to the ends and means thing. Right. You know, if you're creating a, a political environment in which you can believe what you can believe because you don't allow people that you disagree with to speak, right. then you have actually, in fact, not created the political environment you were trying to create in the first place. You end, you know, in the in the in the epilogue, and I think this is because because the situation is now so complex and so, you know, rapidly changing and hard to get like a handle on. You end with a kind of a a call for how how young people or how the next generation might kind of get control of this big mess, and it and it. It's beautifully written and it goes, but it goes off into a, almost a kind of like metaphysical abstraction. <laughs> and, 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 and I, I feel like that's because there there's no, no obvious answer. Yeah, I had no, you know, initially it ended really darkly. Like I remember I was reading it out loud. I don't know, maybe it was to one of my kids or something. And the last, the last sentence, the last phrase was the doom black. <laughs> dark. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, This is okay, the section I'm talking about, yeah. steering by the yeah, stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And like, I was like, okay, I cannot end with a doom black dark. <laughs> like, that's just not okay. I, ultimately, like, it is a book that you'd hope, like, a college student would read. And she's in total abdication of responsibility to, like, say, hey, give it a shot. Like, let's try to fix, right, fix right, right, this. Right, right, right. This is still a good country. <laughs> this still could still be, a, you know, this, there are good things. There are so many good people and goodwill. And and uh, like, get back in there and give it a. Sh so I, I added this paragraph that like they just <laughs> it is it's very airy, you know, in a way. But I we had a uh, a department seminar where I read the epilogue and I said to people like I could end this way or I could end with this paragraph, <laughs> or I could end with like a list of things that you know you'd find hope in. And so I said like let's do the list and we just <laughs> like we we had like a room full of historians. There really wasn't. It just also it's not it's it's not my blueprint you know what I mean yeah, it's yeah, for yeah, the yeah, for yeah, the yeah. reader to write well, so I I did my best to end you know uh, Frederick Douglass gives a speech at the end of his life in 1894 to a, a school in Manassas Virginia in the whole speech I mean this is Jim Crow like he's fought for emancipation he's fought for civil rights fought for freedom the Reconstruction Acts. Only to have the Compromise of 1876 and mm -hmm. Reconstruction. Jim Crow laws start in the 1880s. Guy's almost dead. Everything he's fought for is being unraveled. And he talks about the importance of hope. I think that's a good place for us to leave it. Jill Lepore, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks this for having me. This is fun. I know, I know, the structural difference between this and just any old talk show is the surprise clips and the unlikely conversations they yield. And they'll be back next week, I promise. 
But I was totally blown away by Jill Lepore's book, These Truths. And at this particular moment in history, I just felt, I don't know, a civil obligation not to suddenly change the subject. Please feel free to email me with further thoughts on anything that we talked about at jason at bigthink.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. And we will be back next week with something that really couldn't possibly be more different. See you then.